This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, inside the Marvel Universe, cooped up Canadians making vacation plans, and on the front lines with an eye in the sky on forest fires. But first, unsinkable youth. Silken Lauman, four-time Olympian with nerves of steel and the will to persevere through the pain on the path to victory. And Arissa Roy, youth activist, founder of Project Power Global and warrior in training. Each, both, have something important to say about back to school, recognizing the stress and pressure, ways to not only survive but to thrive, and how to change that sinking feeling to unsinkable. Silken Lauman, the founder of Unsinkable, also the title of her memoir, and Arissa Roy, community champion at Unsinkable Youth, join us now on the feed. What a pleasure to hear from both of you. All right, let's start with you, Silken. Unsinkable, how does that organization that you founded relate to going back to school? <laughs> yeah, well, Unsinkable Youth uh, is, a, is an organization that connects young people and sharing stories of hope and help, um, with a particular focus on uh, mental health. And mental health is is a big topic these days as we get ready for um, the school year amidst an ongoing pandemic. Um, you know, we know not only from the kids that we work with, but just from the statistics that uh, anxiety, depression um, is it, just you know has just exploded um, through the pandemic. So it's a big topic as kids try to figure out how to navigate this new reality that they're living in. And um, Arissa's a great example. I mean, she started high school kind of half virtually, half real, and now she's going into grade 10. And Arissa, that's got to be a not a scary situation for you, but there must be some apprehension as you're moving into this next step. You'll be going back to school in just a couple of days. And As Silken just mentioned, we're emerging, we hope, from a pandemic. You've done virtual, you've done in-class. What are you feeling right now? You're 15. What are you feeling right now? Wow. um, Great question. I think I'm feeling all of the feels, actually. But for me, I think back to school is usually a time where I experience some anxiety. Uh, I think a lot of young people do because not only is it, you know, a new school year, back to um, all of the work that we got to do, there's also a lot of social anxiety, I think, um, linked with going back to school. You know, we're seeing our friends again, we're seeing our teachers again, we get new teachers. And so um, for someone who uh, is you know, I'm, I think I'm a very outgoing person, but, um, you know, meeting new people um, can be just a little bit scary sometimes for me and for my friends. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, you have to factor in the pandemic. And so I think, you know, when I was going into grade nine, it was such a, uh, like, pivotal experience because not only was it high school, it was high school during a pandemic and that was completely different in terms of how it functioned. Um, And so now that I'm going into grade 10, it's a little bit better, but um, still very new and not, you know, the usual. I think it's so important that each both of you has recognized that it is 
it is normal to feel apprehensive about going back to school, and in particular through a pandemic. I mean, this is something that Silk and you and I didn't have to go through when we were younger, but Arissa and her age group, a little older and a little younger, are dealing with it. Silken, let's go back in time. You know, you exemplify courage and determination. You still inspire people today, and we I hearken back to Barcelona 1992. So, 10 weeks before the Olympic Games, you were severely injured in a rowing accident. How did you manage to pull through and pull off a victory? I think that I'm a very resilient person. I have been through a lot in my lifetime and continue to, you know, kind of embrace all the ups and downs of life. And I think at that period of time, I was so focused on the goal of going to the Olympic Games that, like, I couldn't almost entertain not being successful. I couldn't, I couldn't even entertain the possibility that I wouldn't do it. That, that was a kind of mindset. Of course, in those days, like, you know, I, I, I had that tunnel vision. I didn't have a sense of, you know, the idea of, like, wellness and mental health and all of those things kind of coming up in my life. It was kind of later um, that, you know, I started to realize, you know, all the great things that make you a great athlete, your focus, your hyper-focus, your drive, your competitiveness, uh, and sometimes they actually create problems in your life outside of sport, and that's really what's kind of my journey um, towards this area that I am in now, focusing on mental health and, and kind of changing the dialogue and normalizing the conversation, just as you said, Anne, you know, it's normal. It is that what young people are feeling, but we're not living in normal times. And, uh, and that's why we're seeing like anxiety increase so much and, and so many of, um, you know, Arissa's very, uh, put together, very, um, she, she, she knows herself really well. She's a leader of our youth council, uh, but, Many young people are not faring as well, and there's there's a reluctance, I think, um, for young people, and maybe Arissa wants to talk about, it, to reach out to adults and ask for help, and that's that's where having um, you know a platform where they can reach out to to other to each other is so helpful. That makes perfect sense, and Arissa. So you might require some support and some help, but you're also going to be called upon by other youth for some support and for some help. Is that a daunting task for you? Take care of yourself, but take care of everybody else as well. That's a great question. I think for me, um, I've grown up in an environment where I kind of so much feel like I feel so much joy when I'm able to help someone else to the point where sometimes that can go a little bit overboard and I can perhaps, you know, forget my own wellness to help someone else. Um, So I think, you know, I have over the pandemic learned how to, um, yes, you know, manage my mental health, get the help I need, but I've done it in a way that, you know, it's, more learning about how I can cope with the struggles of, you know, being a teenager right now and then share it with people like the youth council, all of the youth I get to work um, at Unsinkable with. And to me, that's been the greatest gift possible because I feel like um, in order to, you know, be a change maker in the world, it's all about first 
a learning how to take care of yourself and then learning how to share that with others. And Silken, identifying that there is an issue, that's got to be first and foremost. So we've talked about that. Now let's discuss how you can help, how Arissa can help, how Unsinkable can help, how Unsinkable Youth can help. Yeah, I think... You know, we really, you know, we really believe in the power of um, sharing, and I, and you know, coming back to you know when I was an athlete, and, you know, I was under huge amounts of pressure, and and there were mental health implications to that, but I didn't even have a language, I didn't even have a way of understanding it, and for me, it was when I, you know, in my forties, you know, wrote my book that I realized, wow, like actually, struggle is kind of universal and so many people have gone through similar experiences I would hear that over and over again and and that was really the genesis of developing unsinkable and unsinkable youth was that um, we need to start to have an honest and open dialogue um, not just about our struggles I and mean, I think that's really important people talk about that but also about what's working and, you know, what got us through the toughest of times. And as much as, you know, we have um, the, the, the support of psychologists and we bring experts into um, our organization, I also really believe that we learn from lived experience from each other. And, you know, Arissa is only 15 years old, but she's a pretty wise um, soul, and and she's been through struggles. And and for her at 15 to be sharing with another 15 year old um, who's had some maybe some similar struggles, um, and and you know what's working, what's not working. I've learned so much from the young people that come through our organization and, um, you know, like I apply some of the stuff that they're doing to my life and go, wow, this really works. I was, so, so the, the youth council itself that um, Arissa is involved in, I mean, um, we're accepting applications right now for young people who um, are, are passionate about advocacy and mental health and, you know, want to get involved. Um, we encourage people to share their stories, their poems, their their paintings. You know, it just it's it's a it's it's a channel of social really for good. Arissa, can we do a little role playing? I would like to be yeah. your age, and I'm going into what grade are you going into this year? I'm going into grade ten. Okay, so that's really important. That's an important grade and an important time in a young person's life. So I am fifteen. I'm going into grade ten. These are my fears. This is why I feel vulnerable, Arissa. I'm I'm anxious about meeting other people, meeting new people, being back in a classroom setting while we're still in a pandemic. Uh, the teachers, the subjects, the older kids in the school that would be pretty scary to me at age 15. I want to fit in. I want to learn. I want to be happy. What would you say to me? Yeah. So the first thing I'd say is um, you're not alone. I know we hear that a lot when we're speaking about mental health, but I think it is so important to understand that all of the fears, all of that anxiety is is very universal for a lot of students in grade 10 and in high school and every age. So the first thing I tell you is that you're not alone. I experience those things as well. The second thing I'd say, um, and that, you know, we talked about in youth council, I, I lead the grade seven to nine council. And so it's, it's a very interesting age group to be communicating with. And, you know, a lot of the things we talk about is that 
Um, a lot of our anxiety can come from the fear of not fitting in. And so, you know, you were just speaking about how I want to be happy, I want to fit in, I want to, you know, um, get along with everybody. And so the first thing I'd say to that is, you don't always have to be appreciated by everyone, but you do want to come to a point where you are confident in who you are. And so for me, that's looked like, you know, checking in with myself daily. Um, you know, I journal a lot. I, I try and prioritize my mental health because that helps me understand who I am as a person and then find the people who are similar to me. And so, um, you know, in life, we can all, we can a lot of the time want to be accepted and appreciated by everyone, but that's not always going to happen, and that's okay. But what we can do is figure out who we are and then find the people who connect with us. Wow. So that's what I'd say. Hmm. And the third thing I'd say is try, and if you need help, reach out. I can say that I did reach out over the pandemic because I was struggling with not only um, anxiety, but also stress. I'm, you know, I lead an international organization with over 15 team members, which can be really difficult at my age managing that and school, um, as well as all the work that I'm doing at Unsinkable. So, you know, reaching out was a huge help for me. And so I encourage all youth, whether it's through getting involved with, you know, unthinkable youth, through counsel, or even reaching out to a professional to support you. There's always resources that you can turn to. Um, and, you know, another great tool is the Kids Help Phone, which I know um, is used mm-hmm. by a lot of youth around Canada. Absolutely. You know, listening to you, Arissa, I feel like I'm speaking with someone much older and much more experienced than you. You really are quite incredible. You're so, uh, you're you're calm, cool, and collected, and you're very honest as well, and I really, really appreciate that. So, Silken, the last word, what's your advice to help young people as they go back to school, back to in-class learning, to get rid of that sinking feeling and feel unsinkable? Yeah, well... I remember sitting with my coach um, before a big race, and he asked me if I was nervous. And I was so nervous I could hardly swallow. And I said to him, a little. He says, good, good, that's normal. And I would say that to young people, I'm anxious, I'm afraid, I'm, you know, it's normal to a certain extent, right? And I think there's a relief in that for people to realize, like, oh, okay, we have been living through a pandemic. Everything's been weird. Everything's been stressful. We are stressed. It's normal, given the circumstances. That doesn't mean that we can't reach out for help or shouldn't reach out for help. We probably should. You know, and we, but we also need to start sharing that reality and those experiences and getting real from it. But it's a moment in time. We're going to get through this. And for the young people going back to school, you know, of course they don't have that perspective yet because they're not 40, they're not 50. You know, this too shall pass. You know, these feelings of not measuring up, of comparing oneself, of, you know, not knowing what the future holds, they will pass. And, you know, you will, you, you know you, we all eventually discover who we are and, and find that peace inside ourselves. But if you are struggling today, if you're one of those people that, you know, 
you, you know, that, that, that fear, that anxiety, whatever is becoming overwhelming, do exactly what um, Arissa said, reach out for help. Mm. so important. And we will cross the finish line, that is for sure. So, Silken, how can young people, really anyone interested in being a part of Unsinkable or Unsinkable Youth, how do we do that? Yes. Um, well, first of all, follow us on Instagram youth, um, on Unsinkable Youth on Instagram. Um, and, you know, you know, get engaged in some of the stories and the comments and, you know, the, the issues coming up and the art and the spoken word. I mean, Arissa got involved with us by submitting a, a spoken word poem. Um, and then, you know, join the Youth Council, um, you know, get engaged in um, our our events that that are put on. So I think that's, that's the, the, the starting point of um, connecting to our platform. And Arissa, are you anticipating mm-hmm. that you're going to have fun as well? Oh, yeah. You know, in, in times of struggle, there's always those little moments of joy. Mm-hmm. And I think despite this, this time of uncertainty, continued uncertainty, I think there's a lot of beautiful moments that really make us feel unthinkable. And I think, um, you know, as long as we find the time and the space and the headspace to appreciate those moments um, and remember, as Sokin said, that this too shall pass, um, we'll, we'll all be great and um, life will be a little bit easier. So I encourage everyone to take into perspective all of the beautiful um, moments that that are here with us. Silken Lauman, Arissa Roy, I'm humbled and at the same time inspired by your words. Thank you both for joining us on the feed. According to the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, small companies are facing uncertainty. Tina Cortez with a close-up of the data. Taylor Matchett is a research analyst at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Taylor, welcome to the feed. Thank you so much for having me today, Tina. Let's start with your headline. Small businesses face continuing uncertainty around a fourth wave. That doesn't sound very good at all. No, it definitely isn't a great situation for them currently. So what I want to highlight in relation to that is that since our last analysis in February, businesses really haven't been able to make much of a debt in uh, paying off their COVID-19 related debt. And the average amount taken on per business still sits at just under $170,000, with three quarters of them saying that they're more than a year away from actually being able to repay. So you can kind of imagine uh, the discomfort that they're feeling uh, in regards to their current financial situation. And was there a sector that was particularly hardest hit? Uh, Yes, so that would be the hospitality sector, um, and a majority of businesses within hospitality that took on debt are saying that it's actually going to take them longer than two years to repay, and the average debt for businesses in hospitality is coming in at about $333,000 currently. Now, what about the debt load? Has it continued to increase? Uh, Yes. So again, in comparison with our uh, previous estimate from February of this year, the estimate has increased a bit. Uh, In February, it was $135 billion, and now it's sitting at about $139 billion. So how, if possible, do small businesses recover? 
I think the main thing that we need to keep in mind is that support for small businesses needs to continue and also that governments can do their job to provide a bit more clarity about how they're going to make sure businesses can get back to making normal sales. Uh, I think one of the things that we are highlighting right now uh, as a high priority is that businesses need provincial stay open strategies uh, that look at avoiding future lockdowns and business closures as the main priority of that strategy. And in addition to that, governments need to make sure that they aren't pulling the plug on business supports prematurely. And what else can they do in terms of perhaps emergency business services or supports that are available? Uh, Yeah, so I think the main uh, one that I would highlight right off the bat is that currently the federal government has already stopped accepting applications to the Canada Emergency Business Account Loan, or the SEBA loan for short, and it's also started phasing out the wage and rent subsidies. So one of our main recommendations right now is that government instead extends all of those programs, uh, at least until the entire economy can fully reopen, uh, with that including our international borders. Uh, And another thing that we've been pushing for since the very beginning of the pandemic is support for newer businesses. So those that started their business since March 2020 and haven't been able to access any of the support programs available through government up until this point. Now there is a federal election on the horizon on September 20th. What are you hearing from the major parties about support and continuing support for small businesses? I think that we've heard a few things about how the parties intend uh, to continue their support for businesses, uh, but what is most important is that, you know, things are consistent and that we don't yank uh, the rug under from businesses at a time when they still need it. I think we can point to the fact as well that we know that about three-quarters of businesses are fully open at this time and nearly half are fully staffed but we still have less than 40% that are making uh, normal sales for this time of year. So I think they need to be really sensitive to that reality and also the fact that that has been the situation for businesses for the majority of the pandemic. How many small and medium-sized businesses does the CFIB represent, and what are you hearing from those members? So currently we represent over 95,000 businesses across Canada. Uh, And we are hearing from them in terms of their financial situation that, as I have kind of alluded to, they still need continued support. Uh, We get some comments from our members uh, saying that they're drawing on, uh, in some cases, their retirement savings uh, to keep their businesses going. And also that they, uh, you know, think that the next couple of years could potentially be even more difficult uh, than the last, you know, 17 plus months. So we really need to keep it in mind that the real recovery for small businesses is only just getting started. Wow, just getting started. If our listeners want more information, where can they find it? Uh, They can uh, reach us at our website at www.cfib.ca. Taylor, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much for having me, Tina. It was great. And 
back to some sense of normalcy, Vaughn's Mayor Maurizio Bevilacqua joins us now with his plans for his city as we gear up for the fall of 2021, a fall like no other thanks to COVID-19. Welcome to the feed, Mayor Bevilacqua. And you're right. These are interesting times, but uh, I think with the great citizens of Vaughn and great uh, uh, individuals that reside here in, in the city, uh, we're going to get through this uh, COVID-19 uh, challenge and, and, and uh, come out of it very strong. And speaking of strong, strong leadership does help as well. Thank you, Mayor Bevilacqua. So earlier this week, you thanked everyone involved in making the Maple Community Center Vaccination Clinic a huge success. What was the significance of that announcement earlier in the week? Well, first of all, it's very important during this period to express gratitude uh, to everyone involved in the fight against COVID. And uh, these are exceptional individuals who have given them themselves in a very selfless way. To put it in perspective, approximately 125 of those vaccines uh, were administered at the Maple Community Center and, and temporary site of Father E. Buffon Community Center, uh, where more than 13,000 uh, doses uh, were administered. We work very closely uh, with uh, York Region uh, Public Health uh, to, to make sure that uh, the vaccination process uh, proceeds as well, and it has. Uh, you know, when you look at the numbers here in uh, in York Region, over 80% of York Region's uh, eligible residents uh, have been uh, vaccinated, and, and that is good news for, for our region. It's one of the highest uh, in, in the country, and it just speaks to how seriously uh, people here in York Region and, and Vaughn have taken uh, COVID-19. So York Region Public Health is now assuming day-to-day operations. The what does that mean in terms of how it's been operated up until this point? Well, it's been operated essentially with uh, with our team, uh, but I do think that, that uh, it's important now to pass it on to to, to York Region, and they will continue doing uh, the excellent job that uh, our team here has done uh, through throughout the the pandemic. It's uh, yet another example uh, of the cooperation that exists between uh, York Region and and the City of Vaughan. It's 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 the way to to proceed forward. Uh, these are obviously uh, well thought out plans that uh, have the best interest of the citizens at heart. Mayor Bevilacqua, after consulting with York Region's top doc, Kareem Kurji, you stated a few weeks ago that you were directing your administration to develop a mandatory vaccination policy for Vaughan City employees. At what stage are you right now? Well, the policy is currently being uh, developed uh, with more details to follow, and Bond City staff will ultimately develop a policy that protects the health and well-being of our uh, employees uh, by mandating that staff are fully uh, vaccinated. Um, And, of course, uh, when you're dealing with issues like this, Dan, as you know, uh, the city will comply with its human rights obligations and accommodate employees who are legally entitled to to accommodation uh, from not being vaccinated. But there's no question about the fact that my message throughout uh, COVID-19 has been to to get as many people in, in our community uh, vaccinated as possible because I think that is uh, the way we can uh, defeat COVID-19. Are you anticipating any pushback from the employees, from their unions? Well, look, you know, look, whenever I, I, I make an announcement like this, I have to look at one issue which I think is is paramount, and that is the issue of reasonableness. 
And so is a mandatory vaccination policy reasonable? And I say that given all the stats, the science, uh, the number of people that have died, the number of people that have infected, the impact that's had on the economy uh, and uh, the health care capacity of our province and our country, I think the reasonableness uh, test has been met. And that is why I confidently uh, called for a mandatory vaccination policy for the city uh, of Vaughan. And, uh, and, I, and I basically made that announcement to tell people that it's coming. It's not a question if it's coming. It is going to uh, be uh, implemented, and I wanted people to know ahead of time. And will this mandatory vaccination policy also apply, let's say, to your city councillors? Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, leadership starts at the top, and uh, everyone has to uh, be vaccinated, and, and that is something that uh, I am confident that uh, City Council is indeed uh, vaccinated. And don't mean to put your feet to the fire, but when do you anticipate that you will be in a position to make the announcement to the City of Vaughan and to the rest of us? Yeah, it's, I mean, in, in short order, this is not something that's going to take uh, months or, or years. This is going to be... Um, based on an action plan that uh, that I have clearly outlined to the administration, uh, we, we need to move uh, quickly. And I think that, you know, one thing that COVID-19, at least internationally, what I noticed is that at any point in time in which people dithered or dithering, <laughs> uh, you know, we paid the large consequences. It's like when people were, you know, wondering whether they should be vaccinated or, or not. You know, some people have died as a result of, uh, of not being vaccinated. And uh, I think it's a high price to pay. Uh, and I, I really don't endorse any kind of policy that... Um, makes people sick, uh, makes people die, and, uh, and is not consistent with, I think, the higher values of making sure that the health and well-being of our community is paramount. Back to school. Right after this Labor Day weekend in which we are speaking at this moment. So let's talk about what Vaughn as a city and you as the mayor and your council, what are you doing to make back to school exciting and safe. Well, I mean, uh, we we have certain policies in place, and, and one of the issues uh, that uh, I deeply care about is safety. And so, the city's new uh, speed uh, limit uh, policies coming into effect uh, uh, September uh, September eighth, and speed limits in school zone areas are decreasing from fifty to forty kilometers per hour, effective uh, September. Uh, eighth to, to align with the first uh, day of school. And this is a comprehensive policy that, uh, because, you know, we, we, there again, you know, and you probably see the, the constant theme here, it's safety, it's the well-being of, of the citizens. It's all very much, you know, we spoke about COVID, now we're speaking about reducing speed limits, because why? Because you want to make the community safe, you want to make sure that, uh, the you know, to help ensure families can, can walk uh, safely, cycle, or drive to and, uh, and from school. Uh, we, we, we've we launched, uh, we're launching this new uh, speed limit uh, policy um, in all school zones across uh, across Vaughan, and, and it's a responsible thing to do. I know you have the greatest respect for young people in your city and really everywhere in, in Canada. Uh, 
let's talk about your suggestions, your words to uh, students embarking on their 2021-22 educational journey. It's new, it's different, it's unlike any start of a school year in history that I can recall. What do you say to the young people that are heading back to school shortly? Yeah, first of all, I say to them that I'm very proud of uh, the way they've handled the COVID-19. I think it's a generation that will grow up remembering the COVID-19, and, and I've been impressed uh, by the manner in which they've handled it. And that shows a lot of leadership on, on their part. And I'm very grateful that we have exceptional students that uh, and young people here in our community that are willing to, to display uh, what you know, it means to take care of the greater good, the, the public interest. And so uh, to the teachers, to the parents, uh, to everyone involved in the education system, I simply want to wish them the very, very best. Education is very important. Uh, you know, it is uh, really the foundation upon which uh, successful societies uh, are built. It is a, a place, it is the place, the educational space is the place where you really learn about about the world, learn about yourself. Uh, it's where you're challenged and and uh, and where great progress is made. And, and so I, I simply want to say to them that all to 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 commit themselves to education and, and self development and and strive towards self actualization uh, because ultimately that's what makes life uh, meaningful and purposeful. I would like to quote you, if you're all right with this, never too late to achieve academic success and pursue continuous learning. That came from you, and it comes from your personal back-to-school journey. Would you share that with our listeners? Absolutely. I've always been a strong advocate uh, for continuous uh, learning and higher education and lifelong learning. I went back to school at age uh, 56, and obviously I was mayor of the city. And um, and I went back and I earned the ICDD designation from Rotman School of Management. And, and while obviously pursuing my... Um, uh, the work as mayor and making sure that the aspirations and vision for our city um, were realized. I also completed a Master of Arts degree from Fordham University, which is a Jesuit university in New York City, and, and a Master of Laws. When I came back uh, from my New York experience, uh, I pursued a Master of Laws degree from uh, the, the University of Toronto. And I can tell you uh, that those days were interesting days. This entire process took three and a half years uh, because of how big I am uh, as mayor, attending various events and, and dealing with uh, important issues for the city and, and council meetings. I think you know what mayors do here uh, throughout the world. Very, very busy. I blocked the 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. every day for, the, for those three and a half years. Wow. Those were my study sessions, and I can tell you that there were many, many late nights and, and early mornings during those years, but um, it is something that I wanted to do for a long time. Plus, I do believe that you can always improve, but that requires the humility to understand it. You know, you're not all-knowing that wisdom and, and education, you know, it's something that you need to, to, to continuously do. And, you, you know, you should learn and, uh, as if you're going to live forever. Uh, and, um, and so at age 56, I went back. And at age 59, you know, I had two master's degrees in ICDD and, you know, and uh, achieved, I think, quite a bit also for, for the city uh, of Vaughan. So I, I consider that uh, fulfilling my ambition. And also, 
remembering that in life's journey, you, you need to be present. You need to improve yourself. Uh, you you always need to do the things that make your life uh, meaningful and purposeful, and and contribute. Ultimately, really, life comes down to two things. You know, it comes down to value added. In other words, what do you bring to the table, and what are you willing to do for the community? Uh, how are you going to improve yourself? How are you going to fulfill your potential as a human being and self-respect? Hmm. Those are the things that really uh, should be the anchors uh, to, to to one's life. Very much appreciated you sharing your personal journey. I think that will inspire many people at various ages and stages in life. So back to life, back to reality, hopefully back to some sense of normalcy. What are your parting words as we uh, move ever closer to the fall of 2021? Well, that uh, once again, gratitude to the entire population, uh, but also uh, we we need to anchor ourselves to some, you know, some great values and beliefs, and that is that you know we we need to to contribute to, to the community, and you need tenacity, and you need perseverance during these times, and you need to have within yourself a willingness to bring about positive change, and if we all do that. Uh, the city of Vaughan will do exceptionally well, as it has done in the past. Um, and, I, and I also think and that, that ultimately I want people to be happy. I want people to feel uh, fulfilled. I want people to, to hope uh, for a better tomorrow and to, to make sure that we collectively understand that we have a responsibility to make it so. Mayor Bevilacqua, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you, Anne. After the break, drones take flight over forest fires. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. This headline really caught my eye. Pegasus Imagery is bringing new drone technology to the fight against forest fires. Wow. This aerospace startup based not too far from Edmonton has developed and built proprietary drones equipped with radar and infrared sensors programmed to gather critical information, take high-def video, and create real-time maps. So how does this eye-in-the-sky technology help firefighters gain the upper hand in the war against raging wildfires? Co-founder and CEO of Pegasus Imagery, former Canadian Armed Forces soldier Cole Rosentretter joins us now with the answer. Thanks for being with us on the feed, Cole. No, perfect. Thanks for the interview this time. So, this is fascinating. Pegasus Imagery, let's go to its genesis. Why did you start this company? How did you put it together with this incredible technology? Out of a, out of a clear need, um, as most technology companies like to, to talk about, there has to be like an aha moment. And, and mine really came from uh, my experience in the military and uh, seeing a really massive capability gap between some of the, the limited expensive tools that we had overseas to make us safer, like military drones, and what, what's just not here at all uh, on the home front, uh, helping us you know, protect Canadians, uh, our communities, and our environment uh, in our own, uh, in our own back, back, backyard. You are in charge of a small fleet of what we are calling sophisticated drones equipped with powerful sensors and AI. So can you describe the drone, one of them, 
and exactly what they are equipped to do and how? Absolutely. Uh, so firstly, as a company, what we do is data and sensor systems. It's the data, the, the information that is really the core of, of how we're, we're solving some of these major challenges. The drones um, are equipped with some of these sensors that we've developed in-house, and those sensors are primarily uh, about how we're going to solve this regulatory barrier. This is the, the great filter on how we can collect data at scale. So if you think about um, a very small plane or a very large drone, uh, that's roughly where we're at. So our drones have uh, about a 14-foot wingspan. So we look like a kind of a normal plane, and then we take off and land vertically and then fly uh, in like a, like a fixed-wing motion uh, once we're off the ground. And what this allows us to do is kind of get the, the benefit of being able to la- uh, launch and land from anywhere and have the efficiency to fly between 5 to 10 hours per flight. And what kind of information is then sent back, and how is it gathered? Quite in the exact same way you would think um, a military drone or, or a police helicopter or, or some type of search and rescue uh, aircraft would do it. Uh, we carry sensors that uh, have both daylight and infrared cameras on them. And what this allows us to do is have that video feed, not just in high definition, but the exact location of uh, what we're, where we're looking. That information is streamed uh, securely uh, back to our remote operators, wherever they're actually flying the aircraft from, as well as being able to uh, connect uh, first responders both on the front lines, um, like firefighters dealing with wildfire, as well as all the way back to you know, uh, people in Ottawa or Toronto uh, or wherever you actually uh, happen to be at that point. It's about delivering this information as fast as possible so that people at all different levels of a response can have a common operating picture. They can see the problem clearly and start making decisions. And is it to help boots on the ground, for instance, firefighters know where to go to attack the wildfire? Is it also helpful in finding people who may be caught in the middle of a wildfire? It's yes to all of the above. Mm -hmm. So if you're a firefighting team on the ground and you're out there either trying to cut into the forest and and make a break so the fire can't uh, continue moving forward, or if you're working on the backside of the fire, putting out hot spots behind the fire front. Um, those are both kind of tactical uh, support. So making them safer and smarter. Um, you don't have to walk around and, and look for hot spots. Uh, you know exactly where they are because you have a, a highly accurate uh, location. Or you have a coordinate system. So at the operational level, now if you're responsible for 500 firefighters in that area, um, now you're able to better coordinate all those smaller teams and their resources so you have a better understanding of, you know, where everybody's moving around. There are so many benefits to your drones, your Pegasus drones. For instance, they can fly at night over forest fires when planes and choppers can't because of flight rules. Exactly. One of the, one of the biggest challenges as a company we're solving is how can our unmanned aircraft fly in the same airspace as manned aircraft? Um, this is the, the big re- regulatory uh, barrier right now, and this is uh, what we're actually looking at solving. In order to do this, though, uh, helicopters and mo- almost all aircraft don't fly at night. It's just too dangerous, and the visibility is too low. So in the morning, uh, what you find on wildfires is your incident commander or your fire boss, they're waking up in the morning, having to essentially wait for a helicopter to show up. 
uh, get in that helicopter, fly around, do a visual assessment of the fire boundary, what's changed since they last saw the, the fire, you know, at last late the night before. That takes hours. And during that time, you have however many people and heavy equipment or aircraft all waiting for a plan to get put together. What we're doing is we're staying over top of fires throughout the night when nobody else is able to. And by monitoring the fire, uh, when those fire bosses and those decision makers are waking up in the morning, they don't have to get in a helicopter. They can have a cup of coffee. And they can look at a computer display or a newly printed map, if that's what they're using. They can make a plan, and 10, 30 minutes later, everybody has the plan for the day. Wow. And it's, a, it's about as accurate as it possibly can be because it's uh, probably 20 minutes, 30 minutes old, as opposed to 8 to 12 to 24 hours old. So time is obviously of the essence, but so can the budget, if you will. Flying drones, it's, it's probably much less expensive than it is to fly a plane or a helicopter. Well, it, it is, definitely, and... Part of the challenge is you can't really compare apples uh, to oranges on this one. You can have a helicopter fly around and have that pilot do a situational, uh, situational awareness kind of assessment. Where do, where do we see the fire? But they're not going to be able to give you a digital readout, and they're not going to be able to send that information down in real time to a decision maker at like an incident command center. So it's not really even the same quality of data. Um, they're also not able to fly at night. So there's another uh, kind of unser- completely unserved period in these disasters. So, uh, it, and to be fair, it's you know if we end up crashing a drone uh, into a wildfire, we have insurance. Hmm. Uh, we're not we're not risking uh, you know air crew lives and safety just to capture this information either. How is this being received by the government, by uh, uh, provincial uh, firefighting contingents? How- are, are they comfortable? Are they excited about this technology, about Pegasus imagery? It's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, for clarity, uh, there's, there's a lot of drones out there, primarily, you know, the Best Buy kind of drones that are being used. Those aren't the ones that we need to save a city or, you know, help try and turn the tide on what's happening in uh, northern Ontario or, you know, particularly in British Columbia. Uh, like military-grade drones for wildfire is also not new. The United States has been using uh, their military drones unarmed over top of fires for the last five or six years to do exactly this type of work. The challenge is um, those drones are really expensive and there's not a whole lot of them. And here in Canada and other countries like Australia, those drones just really aren't available either. So we're bridging this kind of capability gap between what the military has on the shelf and what you can pick up at the local store. So for us, drones aren't new problem is uh, we spent the last two years developing this technology to assist wildfire firefighters and emergency managers, but we've also approached various levels of government at the provincial and at the federal level uh, to help accelerate what we're doing, but we've received uh, very little uh, interest so far. So it's, it's an interesting time for us because we're looking at what's going on right now. Now that there's an election and BC has had this historic disaster year, the federal government is finally indicating that they want to provide support, and they're talking currently about you know a thousand new firefighters. But really, that's almost a, a band-aid solution because uh, it doesn't address the need to develop or deploy new technology that firefighters and people on the front line really need to not just have more more people or more resources, but how to actually use what they currently have to their maximum potential. Cole, why do you think 
wildfires are as strong as they are in Canada. They continue to plague this country. And you have some thoughts about why and what needs to be done. So it's kind of going back to the source rather than the solution. From a technology or an engineering perspective, we break this down to like what's called a first principles level. It's fuel load. Uh, we have incentivized the system in North America and around the world that fires are bad, when in, in reality they're natural. We don't like having fires out of control, so we've, we've established a system that uh, is very good and heavily incentivized to put fires out very quickly. What we also aren't very good at, though, is prescribed burns or controlled burns. So rather than trying to you know, have, our, have a system where we're confident we can start fires and put them out, uh, not, we don't. So what we, what we find ourselves with is there's a lot. There's about 30 or 40 years of fuel load, like dry, dry brush that's built up over the time. And when these fires happen, it's not that there's a whole, like a larger number of fires, really. It's just the fact that there's so much fuel sitting there waiting for them when they do start. But that's how they're moving so quickly out of control. We have to look at this as um, we have to first be much better at suppressing fires and getting on top of them as early as possible. That's where the information comes in. And then what that will allow us to do is uh, go on the offense and start actually looking at you know, a true forestry management system that keeps the fuel load to a manageable level and we don't have these you know, gigantic bombs basically sitting waiting for another lightning strike or another you know, human-caused fire to start. What is it from your past in the military that has brought you to this point? Why are you so determined to have this technology embraced by the, the levels of government necessary? Well, when the, when the military goes on a mission, uh, that is the hard power to a soft power, you know, a diplomatic challenge in a lot of cases. This is a, this is a, a, a willpower issue is what it looks like uh, from coming from the military. We, we have a bottomless pit of money that we draw on every year because when a disaster happens like a Fort McMurray or a Lytton, we can't get halfway through the budget and say, all right, we have to slow down. We're spending too much money. We, it's, it's a disaster. It's a public safety event. So what that means is we, we're spending mon- more money than we actually really understand um, what the costs are to fight these fires more effectively. So we're really good at the response, but we're not very we're we're not very good at all as a country in all the tools that will help save uh, save the, the billions of dollars down the road if we put a little bit of extra effort into the prevention and the mitigation side. Eye in the sky technology, drone technology to help battle wildfires here in this country. Co-founder and CEO of Pegasus Imagery, Cole Rosentretter. Thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Absolutely fascinating. Oh, thank you very much, Anne. When we come back, Marvel on the big screen. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Anne Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Some Canadians may be staying close to home, but others are dreaming of their next vacay. Jim Lang with what the survey says. 
Our good friends at Samsonite have done a travel survey that would interest a lot of Canadians. And when you look at the numbers and break it down, it sure makes a lot of sense to talk more about it. Thrilled to be joined by Aaron Reynolds, who's Samsonite's marketing communication specialist. That's a big name and a big handle, but very worthy of it. Aaron, thank you for joining me. How are you? Thanks. I'm good. Uh, it's The numbers are quite interesting. You did an in-depth survey, and the majority of Canadians will travel to Canada, not in the U.S. Only 8.7% of us feel safe right now to travel to America. I, I really can't argue with those numbers at all. Yeah, you know, I, I thought it might be a bit higher than that, but with the Delta variant, you know, going around, I think people are just feeling safer to keep it, keep it Canuck. Well, and, and, and Aaron, I, I mean, we, we, we get the news feeds and we're seeing some of the highest numbers in some of the more popular Canadian travel destinations in America. That, to me, is the probably thing that would scare off a lot of us. Absolutely. And, you know, it's great to see that people are discovering the beauty of traveling in Canada because sometimes I think as Canadians we forget how great of a country we have to travel within our own borders and maybe just maybe we do rediscover some areas we haven't thought about before. I totally agree. You know, Canada really offers such a wide selection of, of destinations. So I'm kind of excited to hear that Canadians really are looking at keeping it local and supporting, you know, our local businesses and travel industry. Now, this to me is fascinating. And, and, and I know this because my wife and her two cousins, and they're all women of the same vintage, are planning a trip to see some family members in Holland. And nearly twice as many Canadian women, 65%, would like to travel to Europe when they're able to versus only 35% of Canadian men. That's right. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. I think Europe is definitely really high on a lot of people's list and and so is the caribbean and and japan as well and and the u.s i think once it's a little safer to do so now i have to admit i'm you know my wife and i were really into the tokyo olympics and seeing some of the landscapes and the seascapes and the geography of the tokyo area for the olympics we're like well, Jim, we got to go to tokyo someday and that, that really did pique our interest so we, we would be in that category as well Absolutely. I think a lot of people, you know, are using this sort of extra time at home to do some research on travel, too, and figure out, hey, you know, when we can travel again, where do we want to go? There's so many possibilities and so many places are putting things online that you can discover, you know, add to your travel bucket list, I guess, easier than ever before, I'd say. Absolutely. Thrilled to be joined by Aaron Reynolds, Samsonite's marketing communication specialist. They've done a great travel survey. As we, we, Especially Canadians, I find, Aaron, when the weather's nice, we want to take some summertime and go to northern Ontario, travel around. And when the weather's cold, we want to go somewhere warm. But there's something about the DNA of Canadians. We do like to travel, do we not? Absolutely. It's it's huge on on the list. And I think there's a lot of people who are really looking at traveling out west and out east and and even central Canada. Um, So people are expanding their traditional travel thoughts, I think. Well, I just was talking to a buddy of mine yesterday and him and his friends are going on a golf trip to Nova Scotia. And he's never been before, but they're like, well, let's just go there instead of going down to the States. So true. Nova Scotia, I think, is a big hotspot right now. Absolutely. Now, this is fascinating to me. Uh, Ask what celebrity Canadians would most like to travel with and share a suitcase with. Ryan Reynolds was number one. Uh, Ryan Reynolds, very funny. Now, now Catherine O'Hara was lower in the list, and after seeing her in Schitt's Creek, I would have ranked her a little bit higher. 
Yeah, I thought she'd be a bit higher, too. Um, you know, it was interesting. I think Celine Dion was in second place for who people want to share a suitcase with. And, you know, Samsonite in Canada is based at a Stratford hometown of Justin Bieber. Thank you And very much. we were kind of sad to see that, that he came in last with who people want to well, share a suitcase with. Now, I like the Biebs <laughs> as much as the next guy, Aaron, but I'm worried as a travel partner, he might stay up too late and not let me get proper rest when I want to get rested for the next days of travel adventures. And I think that maybe Ryan Reynolds would go to bed at a decent hour. That would be my guess. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> I think Ryan Reynolds would be my choice, yeah, for yeah. sure, number Absolutely. one. <laughs> now, now, this is the other one I thought was really funny. You asked can he, uh, what Canadian celebrities' luggage you'd like to snoop through the most, and Pamela Anderson was number one. <laughs> That's right. 27.4% of Canadians want to see what Pamela Anderson is packing. Yeah, and then Ryan it's Gosling hilarious. and Keanu Reeves right up there. Now, Keanu Reeves is a, yeah. actually a pretty low-key guy. He takes the subway, and and I bet, but Ryan Gosling, I bet he's got a lot of face products and a lot of cool things are probably in there. <laughs> um, it, it, hopefully, as we get back to normal, this is true, but the one, I guess the, the one silver lining in all of this is Canadians who don't feel safe to travel to America right now, Aaron, is people who've never been to the Maritimes going there or really going to Northern Ontario or maybe seeing parts of the prairies and the Rockies they've never been to. Because I know, I mean, I know a lot of Canadians, they know their geographical area in the big city in Canada and they travel elsewhere and they often don't travel within our own borders. It's so true. I had uh, a friend say once that, you know, almost anything you can find elsewhere in the world, you can find in Canada. You know, lakes, mountains, yes. oceans, deserts. You know, it, it's so varied um, with with things you can experience here. So I'm really, I'm really excited to see that people you know, are finally looking at Canada as a real destination. You know, Aaron, I didn't realize this, but my wife and I have put this on our list of place to go is see the uh, monarch butterflies at, Pele, at Point Pelee Island. Oh, yes. And it's drivable, and you can maybe get a bed and breakfast or something. And, and we were taking a look, and you realize how far south that is compared to a lot of American <laughs> states. It really is well south. Absolutely. Yeah, I think a lot of people are surprised when they really look at it on a map and they realize, oh, wait, that's like, you know, on par with California. <laughs> uh, right. So there's a lot of those Canadian yeah. gems that we, we discover. So this is fantastic. So get more details and learn more about it with our friends at Samsonite with their European survey and be part of their survey as we uh, get back to traveling. And, and Aaron, I'm not surprised at all that most Canadians, right, for the time being, until things, quote, unquote, get back to normal, would be more than happy to travel within our borders. Now, all we have to do as Canadians, I know this has been talked about before, is claim one of the Caribbean islands as our own, so at least we have somewhere <laughs> where we're all safe to go to in the winter. Agreed. Put me on that list. <laughs> Absolutely. Aaron, thank you so much for doing this, and all the best. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Next, Anne Brody with the latest Marvel installment with a local connection and in theaters now. Does it feel real to you? Um, not after not after what you just said. That doesn't feel real to me. That that feels very surreal to me. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it has been the most incredible journey these last you know two and some odd years. 
um, not without its its trials and tribulations, but it's been just such a dream come true. I mean, this is this is all I ever wanted for myself when I made the decision to start acting almost ten years ago, and uh, the fact that I am I am in Toronto now, I'm you know here to open the movie in front of a home crowd <laughs> is that there's something just so meaningful about that. So I couldn't be happier. Your Twitter feed is one of the funniest that there is. It's just hilarious, and it may have helped you get this job, which pretty crazy. Uh, I don't know about but, that. <laughs> well, you're very funny, and oh, you know, thank you. Thank you. and I remember seeing you on Kim's Convenience with these bulging muscles, and then of course it all made sense. But you've been athletic your whole life, and that is what got you to this point, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say that. I mean, I was always, I, I was definitely a kid um, that. Uh, you know, my parents always like to say, I'll say it in Mandarin and then I'll translate it, which, which roughly translates to uh, developing well in all areas of the body except for the brain. Um, and so, yeah, I was always a sporty kid. Uh, I played soccer, um, you know, was on the basketball team throughout high school, um, played volleyball, um, you know, went to volleyball provincials, uh, OFSA, I think it's called. Yay. I mean, I, I was always a sporty kid and, and there was always kind of a... a, a special place for me in, in, in my heart for martial arts cinema, for, you know, on-screen heroes that I grew up watching and idolizing like Jet Li and Jackie Chan. And, you know, in my mind, I always wanted to be an action star as well, but I wanted to also do it on my own terms, not as, you know, not as an Asian man from the East or that grew up in Asia and is a, is a foreigner in, in North America, but as, you know, as an Asian Canadian or as an Asian American, as somebody who is distinctly, you know, uh, uh, has one foot distinctly uh, straddled in, in each culture. And um, yeah, this is this is dream come true. Of course, you'll have the uh, the fact that you help break Marvel into the Asian diaspora for the rest of your life. You'll be known for that. Do you feel a response, a great responsibility um, I feel a privilege, you know, I, I feel like, um, you know, it has been a privilege to have starred in five seasons of Kim's Convenience, which was also, you know, a, a big part of, of the, you know, of the diaspora and, and of the culture. And, um, you know, to have so much of my career owed to these, you know, these, these really these celebrations of, of Asian American-ness, of Asian Canadian-ness means that, yeah, I never really had the option to, to not have this quote unquote responsibility. Although I just want to emphasize, I really don't, you know, I oh, don't, well I don't said. see it as that. And, you know, I really, I really do think it's, it's an immense privilege and an, and an honor um, to be to be one of the many torchbearers for our community, you know, I'm, I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to continue doing it, and I'm happy to open doors for for future, you know, future superheroes and and in whatever you know way, shape, or form they may come in um, to to kind of find their light and to and to take up space and to be you know all that they can be. Congratulations on all fronts. We're so proud of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music and Audible. Ooh, I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.